All right, we good? Well, it's Family Sunday, so all of our children are invited to stay. And hopefully everyone here, from the youngest to the oldest, will be able to hear something from the Word of God that they can apply to their lives. And so it's good to be here, and I'm very grateful to be here. Um, There obviously there are no entitlements in the body of Christ, least of all the pulpit. So I'm always very grateful whenever the elders invite me to have the opportunity to do this. So for this Sunday and next Sunday, it's going to be sort of a little bit of vision casting for the new year. And next Sunday, if I'm remembering correctly, Mike is going to be laying out a vision for good works and the pursuit of holiness. And so this week, today, we're going to be laying out a vision for prayer and thinking about prayer as we go into the new year. Now, as Mike and I were discussing this and we were talking about, you know, what exactly a sermon on prayer might entail, you know, Mike had suggested a couple of possible passages to preach from, like perhaps Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, or Philippians, you know, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. And either one of those would be excellent choices for a sermon on prayer. But I'm an OT guy. I'm an Old Testament guy. So whenever these topics come up, the first place my mind goes is to the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so as I was thinking about this, uh, the place where I believe that God landed the plane of my brain was this Old Testament character by the name of Nehemiah. And so if you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, if you know who he is, there are a lot of lessons that can be drawn from the life of this man. Now, most of these lessons have to do with what we call leadership qualities or leadership skills, right? Stuff like integrity, courage, godliness, being, you know, a servant leader instead of a lorded over them leader, um, how to handle conflict management, how to handle opposition, all those kind of things. I mean, you could write a whole book on leadership from the life of Nehemiah, and I'm sure somebody already has. But we're going to be looking at more of Nehemiah's spiritual life as it concerns prayer. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at several passages in the book of Nehemiah and just go through them. And as we read this, as we learn about this man and who he was and what God had called him to do, hopefully a picture will start to emerge that we will be able to connect with, both as individuals and as a church. So if you have a Bible, just open to the book of Nehemiah. Um, If you have one of these, it's actually page 226. If you have a house Bible... Uh, if you have your own Bible, um, it's in the Old Testament, you know, uh, take a left at Esther. If you hit Ezra, you've gone too far, take a right. Sorry, I'm a pace driver, I have to give directions. Um, but if you have one of ours, it's uh, page 226. We're going to start from the beginning and look at a number of passages. But first, just for a little background, um, obviously uh, Genesis to Revelation is a very long story and we're kind of jumping in the middle. So like, where are we? Where are we in the story? Um, about almost 600 years before Jesus was born, the people of Israel, the last group of the people of Israel were conquered. The kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was, were conquered by the Babylonians and sent into exile. Nebuchadnezzar came, destroyed the city, destroyed the wall, destroyed the temple, everything, and took Daniel and a bunch of other people into exile into Babylon, which is where Iraq is today. And so what was left of Israel was destroyed. And so... The people were out of the land for about 70 years, and at some point in there, a new power emerged, the Persians. Under this king named Cyrus came and conquered the Babylonians. So now the Persians are the big dog on the block, and Cyrus is the king, and Cyrus basically allows 
these Jews that he encounters to go back to their land. He says, that's okay. Now, from what I've read in other places, the Persians were notoriously tolerant about religion. They didn't really care who you worshipped or how you worshipped as long as you paid your taxes and didn't try to overthrow the government or anything. So when the Jews want to go back to their ancestral homeland and rebuild their temple, he's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. We'll help you out. We'll give you some building materials. Go ahead, have at it. And that's all in Ezra chapter 1, when the first group of people of Israel come back to the land, led by a guy named Zerubbabel and a priest named Joshua, not Joshua came after Moses, a priest named Joshua, and two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And that group came, go back to Jerusalem, and they managed to get the temple rebuilt, which is good, but not much else. So there's this sort of half-finished Jerusalem. And then that generation passes away, and then later on another king comes along named Xerxes, and he's the guy who was king when Esther was queen, and all the stuff that happened in Esther was later, than, later on than that. And then the next king after Xerxes was a guy named Artaxerxes, and he's the one who's king when Nehemiah comes along. And so when Nehemiah comes on the scene, you have some Jews have gone back to Jerusalem and Judah and rebuilt part of the city, but not all of it. And a lot of Jews have chosen to remain in exile for whatever reason. They didn't want to go back. They're just still all over the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah, one Nehemiah's brother was one of the Jews who had gone back, but Nehemiah himself had not gone back. And as we get into the book of Nehemiah, we find out that Nehemiah has worked his way up the court of King Artaxerxes. His official position is he's the cupbearer to the king, which is actually a lot more important than it sounds. Um, he's kind of, he's in the king's inner circle. He's like a confidant and friend of the king. I guess a good modern day example of somebody like Nehemiah would be somebody like Charles Colson. If you ever heard of him, Charles Colson is the man who founded Prison Fellowship. Before he did that, he was an advisor to President Nixon. And his title was special counsel to the president, but he wasn't just some lawyer. He was somebody who actually was part of Nixon's inner circle. Like he was a friend and confidant of the president, the most powerful man in the world. And that's kind of what Nehemiah is. He's the cupbearer to the king, but he's really more like a friend and a confidant. He's on the king's inner circle. And so, so that's kind of where we are. Judah's kind of half built, no wall around it. Some people are back there, some people are not. And, um, and this is where the book of Nehemiah starts. So we'll start in chapter 1. And um, we're just going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll, uh, we'll go through it. So Nehemiah 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the 20th, I'm sorry, it happened in the month of Hislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants." confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have, act, have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, statutes, and rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. 
They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So he gets his report back from Jerusalem that things are not good and in particular that the wall of the city hasn't rebuilt. Now why is that a problem? Well, <laughs> I understand in our current political climate the whole idea of having a protective wall has kind of taken on a life of its own. But if you can think back to the ancient world, ancient cities, their primary means of defense against enemies was to have a wall around it. That was how you defended yourself against attackers. It had nothing to do with immigration. It had to do with protecting yourself if an army came and wanted to conquer your city. You had to have a wall to guard the city. Now, some cities had notoriously large walls like Jericho, but you needed something, otherwise your city was defenseless. You had no way of defending yourself against an enemy. And that meant that your city was kind of a joke. It was kind of like the, a laughing stock to be a city without walls. You know, he says, you know, we're in great shame because our city isn't built, we don't even have a wall. It's just, it's bad. And so this is, in Nehemiah's mind, this is a catastrophe. So he fasts and prays and invokes covenant promises that are from the book of Deuteronomy. You know, he gets this bad report coming back and he prays hard. And in chapter two, he's gonna have an audience with the king. And so we'll read the first eight verses of chapter two. You know, what's he gonna do about this? Chapter two, verse one. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen was sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So he has an audience with the king, he brings the wine like he's supposed to, and he prays, and he asks basically, what, what should I say to the king? And so he lays it all out. He asks for a leave of absence, he asks for help, he asks for official government authorization so nobody tries to interfere, he asks for building materials to help you know, from the king's forest, and the king grants him everything. And so as he's having this really important meeting with the king, he prays. And God gives him insight as far as what to ask for and what to do. And so he goes ahead and the king grants everything he asks. And so he heads for uh, Jerusalem. And then when he gets there, at the end of chapter 2, we'll not read it, but he, he sees who's there. He gets together with all the leaders who were there. He says, okay, this is what we need to do. You know, we need to, we need to get the wall built. And he starts getting everybody organized. And then in chapter 3, he kind of assigns details to everybody, this group is working here in this sense. Everybody starts to rebuild this wall. We gotta do this. And um, they get to work and they start working on it. And then in chapter four, uh, which we'll turn to 
they start to encounter some opposition. <coughs> Excuse me. On chapter 4, verse 1, he runs into these two opponents named Sanballat and Tobiah, and here's what they say. When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, it'll break down the stone wall. And then Nehemiah says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So, again, he, they start to encounter opposition, but the first thing Nehemiah does is he prays. And he prays this sort of psalm-like thing, you know, turn their taunt back on them. And, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't throw a temper or tantrum or anything. He just doesn't do anything rash. He just prays and says, you know, God, do something about this. Like, you know, God, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear see how they're opposing the work? Do something about this. You know, don't cover their guilt. And so... He prays as he encounters this opposition. Then verse 7, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Now that's a very interesting verse that tends to get quoted a lot. In fact, we have it quoted in our back room, I think. Um, for security. It says, we prayed and we set a guard. Um, you know, sometimes when we pray, the answer is something very practical, right? Okay, we're rebuilding this wall and there's opponents all around, so God, what should we do? Well, set a guard. So they, they post guards, people have their tool in one hand and their sword in the other. They say, well, the wall is so big, so let's have strategically placed trumpeters, so if, they, if you see something about to go down, blow your trumpet and we'll all rally to that spot and defend ourselves, basically an old school ring system. And so that's what they do because that was the answer that God gave them. Sometimes the answer to prayer is very practical. Of course, sometimes the, the answer to prayer might be completely impractical. Like when Joshua and the army were going up to Jericho and they're getting ready to attack the city of Jericho, they prayed. What was the answer? The answer was, blow your trumpets for seven days and march around the city and yell and the walls will fall down. But here's the thing. If Joshua had said, oh, that's completely ridiculous, that's totally absurd, we're not doing that, all right, come here, come here, come here. All right, you take this regiment, you attack here, and you take this regiment, you attack here, and I'll attack. You think they would have won the Battle of Jericho that way? Not one chance. Because that wasn't the answer. It would have been a complete lack of faith for Joshua to start drawing up battle plans when God promised to work a miraculous sign. Yep. That was the answer. Now, if God had said to Nehemiah, oh, don't worry about it, Nehemiah. If anybody comes near the wall, I'll just nuke them with fire from heaven. Then it wouldn't have done Nehemiah any good to post guards. But that wasn't the answer. The answer was post guards. See, I hope everybody understands the fact that when we pray to God, we have to be humble. We can't presume to know the answer before we ever offer the prayer, right? Prayer and presumption don't mix. So if we pray and the answer is blow the trumpets for seven days and get your mouthpiece ready and get your popcorn ready, 
But if the answer is post guards and make a plan, then make a plan. When we pray, we have to be humble and receive God's answer and not act like we know the answer already. We have to listen to God. And so Nehemiah listened to God, and the answer was set up guards, set up a ring system, have a plan, implement it. So that's what he did. Excuse me. And so they keep working. They don't, doesn't sound like anybody actually attacks, attacks them, but they kept working. They had their guards posted. The work continued. And then in chapter 5, Nehemiah starts to encounter some internal conflict that's not glorifying to God. You know, he finds out that, um, that some of the people of Israel, there's some financial difficulties, and they're, they're selling themselves into slavery to each other, and they're they're giving each other loans, but they're charging interest, which Israelites were not supposed to do, and making things even more oppressive. They're just kind of oppressing each other. And so Nehemiah kind of has to step in and, and kind of correct this. He says, look, we're not allowed to do that. We need to stop oppressing each other. We have enough other people around trying to oppress us. We can't do this to each other. And so he, um, Nehemiah, says, he, he tries to set a different tone. So if you go to chapter 5, verse 14... We'll just read till the end. Uh, Nehemiah sees what's been going on amongst the people, and he wants to do things a little bit differently. So he says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people." So at the end when he says, when he prays, he says, God, remember for my good what I've done for the people. If you read that in isolation, it may sound kind of self-righteous or kind of a humble brag or something or kind of this sort of Pharisee prayer, God, look how good I am. I don't think so. Um, I think we can infer from his actions that he's not being a Pharisee about it. He, what he's basically saying is, is, God, I'm trying to do this right, so do good to me so I can continue to do this the right way. Um, whenever people ask God to remember something, whenever, in the Bible, whenever it says that God remembered something, it didn't mean God forgot. Like in the book, beginning of the book of Exodus, when the people are in Egypt and they have these oppressive working conditions and they cry out to the Lord and it said God remembered the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It didn't mean God forgot. It just what it meant was that God was about to do something. So when people, when the psalm writers or Nehemiah or anybody else would ask God to remember, they didn't think God forgot. What they wanted was for God to do something. Like, like God, remember this situation, now do something about it. They're, when people say remember, they're asking God to do something. So when Nehemiah says remember for my good, he's basically saying, God, I'm trying to do this right. Do good to me so I can keep doing it right. I don't think he's being a prayer Pharisee or a humble bragger or anything like that. He wants to be the right kind of leader who honors God, and he's asking God to prosper him so he can continue to do that. 
And in chapter 6, um, the opposition gets turned up a notch. <clears throat> now these two guys, Sanballat and, Sanballat and Tobiah, um, they kind of they seem to organize what amounts to a conspiracy. So in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors to the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekepharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you also have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. And I sent him saying, no such things as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, excuse me, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, <clears throat> that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the opposition gets turned up, and he prays more. And he hears from God, this is all false. It's what we now call fake news. They're trying to spread bad reports about Nehemiah, that he really wants to rebel and be king, which of course is wrong. And at the very end, again, he says, he says remember Tobiah and Sanballat. He doesn't think God forgot. What's he asking? He's like, God, do something about this. They're opposing us. They're opposing you. Now, he's not trying to tell God what to do. He's just praying. He's talking to God and saying, God, do something about this. So eventually the wall's finished. At the end of chapter 6, it says it was the complete wall of Jerusalem was built in 52 days, which is pretty impressive considering they didn't have machinery. But God was with them, and they were able to get the work done. So they get the wall built, and then... Um, they kind of take a poll of who all is there. The list in chapter 7, there's a list of exiles. Then in chapter 8, they have what amounts to a nationwide worship service. Um, Ezra the priest steps up with his people, and they read the entire book of the law to the regathered exiles in chapter 8. Um, they read it and explain what it means. And then they kind of call a feast, say, you know, let's celebrate this good thing that God has done. And Chapter 9 and 10, they, there's a mass, time of mass repentance and forgiveness of sins um, where they, they just confess the sins that they've done, especially um, some of them had, had uh, married foreigners and that was exactly what got them thrown into exile in the first place, so they had to repent of that and kind of pledge to not do that anymore. Um, and they all, in chapter 10 and 11, they all basically take a covenant, they covenant among themselves that were 
We're not going to repeat the sins of our ancestors. We're not going to commit idolatry anymore. We're not going to marry into communities that worship idols. We're going to stay faithful to Yahweh, and we're not going to make the same mistakes that our ancestors made that got us exiled in the first place. And everybody who's there takes a covenant to that effect, and they agree to provide for the priests and Levites at the new temple. But then in chapter 13, um, after everybody's kind of settled in and the wall's rebuilt and they're secure, there's still some things going on in the community that are not right that Nehemiah, in his capacity as governor, has to deal with. And um, one, of, one of the things is kind of funny. Um, it says in chapter 13 that Nehemiah took a leave of absence to go back to Susa, to the king, for a while. When he came back, he found out that one of the priests, who apparently was a very corrupt individual, had basically set up an apartment inside the temple grounds for this person, Tobiah, who's been opposing them all along. And so when Nehemiah comes back and he finds out that Tobiah is living in an apartment inside the temple grounds, it says he, took, it says he threw all his furniture out in the street <laughs> and cleansed the whole place. And so he had to deal with that. Um, obviously, that, I mean, with, a, with a similar kind of zeal to Jesus overturning the money changers, you know, Nobiah just trashes this guy's apartment and throws all the furniture out in the street because not, he's not supposed to be living in the temple grounds, especially a foreigner who's been trying to oppose them. So he has to do that. And then he finds out that they're not providing for the Levites properly, so he has to take care of that. And then in verse 15, he finds people who are breaking the Sabbath. They're trading wine presses and merchants who are selling their stuff on the Sabbath, and he puts a, puts a stop to that. And then at first he tells them, no, you're not allowed to do this on the Sabbath. And then he finds out that on the Sabbath day, they're all like waiting outside the gate, like looking at their watches, like counting the minutes until the Sabbath is over so they can get back to their business. And he chases them away and says, stop doing that or I'll lay hands on you. Because even in the Old Testament, I mean, the purpose of the Sabbath was not to count the minutes until the Sabbath was over right? The purpose of the Sabbath and the purpose of the Lord's Day today, this is supposed to be separate. You know, when we gather here today, this is separate from the rest of life. You know, when we gather here on the Lord's Day, we are not human resources. We're not just like waiting to get back to our jobs. This is set apart time where we come and worship God together. This is not a time, I'm not saying anybody here is conducting business or anything, but it's just, that's the point that Nehemiah was making. These, these merchants are like, oh, is it 10 minutes, five minutes, one minute. No, 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 get out of here. That's not what the Sabbath is for. Supposed to be set apart to God, so he has to deal with that. And then he finds some. He finds that some of the people didn't get the memo about intermarriage, and they've intermarried, and their kids don't speak the Hebrew language anymore, and they can't understand the Bible. So he has to deal with that. And the very, the very last verse of chapter thirteen, at the end of the book, after all these things have been taken care of, he once again says, "Remember me, oh my God, for good." Again, same thing. He's trying to do this the right way. He's trying to make sure that people are following the law. And he's just asking God to help him keep doing that. So, as we, this has been kind of an overview sermon. You know, it's like last week, Mike preached one verse and did a very good job preaching one verse. Sometimes you kind of widen the zoom lens a little bit and kind of preach more of the big picture. And so, as I was preparing this and going through this again, the thing that struck me the most about Nehemiah was the fact that Nehemiah was one of these people for whom prayer was just completely and totally normal. Prayer was just the most normal thing in life to him. It's not that he prayed more than everybody. It's not that he prayed with more fervor than anybody. It's just he was constantly praying. 
no matter where he was or what he was doing or who he was with, he was just constantly talking to God. Prayer was just normal to him. You know, he, he gets a bad report back from Jerusalem, he prays. He has an important meeting with the king, he prays. When he goes back to Jerusalem and he's getting everybody organized and trying to be the right kind of leader, he prays. When there's internal conflict and people doing the wrong thing, he deals with it as he's dealing with it, he prays. When he encounters these opponents and he has to deal with these opponents, he prays. You know, when people are still breaking the law after everything is secure, he prays. It's just, he was just constantly praying. Prayer was the most normal thing in life for him. And so, what I think our vision for the new year as far as us, it's not that our prayer life, it's not that we need to ratchet up the intensity up to here in our prayer life, although that's not a bad thing. And I don't think it's that we need to have like some kind of prayer Fitbit where at the end of the day we look, oh, 9,274 prayers. Yeah, all right, good. I'm prayerfully, physically fit. It's, it's that prayer would become more normal to us, that prayer would be less unusual and just more normal. So how do we make this practical? Well, when you're driving into work, pray. Watch and pray. Pray. You're driving into work. Do you have an important meeting at your workplace? Pray. Do you have a difficult coworker that you have to deal with that you know you're going to have to deal with, a difficult client? Pray. If you're going into work, are you going to have to fire somebody? Pray. We have people in this church who are business owners and people in management who make those decisions. Is that ever easy? Pray. God, help me do this with grace. Help me do this honorably. God, help me not return evil for evil if they get all mad and start yelling. I mean, I've, I've never had to, I once had to threaten to fire somebody. That wasn't easy, especially since the guy was a brother in Christ. But just, as you're going through your workday, whatever is going on, pray. Um, moms, we have a lot of moms with small kids at home. I'm sure you're praying all the time anyway, but I mean, just when, when small kids act as small kids inevitably do, I know it's so easy to just react and not take the time to respond, but just as things are happening, pray. When something looks like it's about to happen, pray. Um, students, <clears throat> you have students here. Something big coming up, pray. Got a test, pray. Don't presume upon a miracle if God hasn't promised one, but pray. That's good. Got a big, something big coming up, big game, big performance, big competition, something, pray. God, help me do this well. Help me not become arrogant and self-glorifying if I win. God, help me not become bitter and angry and selfish if I lose. God, help me honor you in whatever this is I'm about to do. Young adults. I know we have a lot of unmarried young adults here. There's always that balance between serving God as a single person and the desire to be married and have a family. I get it. I was single for a number of years before I got married. As you're in the midst of this balance, pray. If there's another person that you think you're interested in, pray. You know, when it came time for, uh, for me and Gloria to start talking about marriage, basically my question to her was, are you hearing the same thing that I'm hearing from God? Now, if she had given me a strange look and said, what in the world are you talking about? That would have been a pretty clear indication that I was not hearing from God. But of course, she was hearing the same thing from God that I was hearing, and 21 years later, here we are. But pray, ask God, as you're navigating that balance as a single adult. So, we just got done celebrating Christmas, right? The birth of Emmanuel, God with us. 
prayer is really just us with God. That's really all it is. Prayer isn't some mystical, abstract thing. Prayer is us with God. We know that God is with us because Jesus was born, and he came to earth, and he suffered, and he died, and he rose from the dead. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us and is with us. We know that God is with us. That's why we're here. Prayer is us with God. And so as we think about this coming year, as we think about prayer, I think our vision should be this. Let us be individuals and let us be a church who can accurately be described as us with God. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whoever we're with, whatever it's about, let's be us with God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of it. Thank you for all the men and women on the pages of scripture that we can look at and connect to our own lives. God, help us to connect with this. Help us be people for whom prayer is normal. Help us just be with you as we go through our days, whether it's big or small, whether it's a catastrophe or just mundane stuff. Let us be people who are with you and talk to you constantly at all times. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.